welcome to the primary ride home for Monday, June 17th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Buttigieg raised a boatload of money in April, an analysis of which candidates are on which nights of the debates and how much it matters, a look at what's driving media coverage of Warren, and Booker talks about being vegan on the BET show Black Coffee. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. One thing to watch for after the debates is the next round of fundraising stories. Today, we get the first taste of those. In a story for Politico, Daniel Strauss and Elena Schneider revealed that Mayor Pete Buttigieg raised $7 million in the month of April alone. Just to remind you, in the entire first quarter of this year, he raised just a hair over $7 million as well. So at least in April, his fundraising operation was doing radically better than Q1, and his Q1 numbers were not bad. There's a link in the show notes to the Federal Election Commission database where you can view what the candidates brought in for Q1 and also what they spent. So here's the deal. When this podcast first started, we were right up against the Q1 fundraising deadline. The way that worked was candidates had until March 31st to raise money, then they had to close the books on Q1 that day, March 31st, and then get that data over to the FEC by April 15th, a.k.a. tax day. All through that period, like from the very beginning of April through the 15th, we kept getting these leaks and even semi-official announcements from various candidates about how much they had made before the FEC actually validated those numbers. That was a way for candidates to make headlines with their big numbers or to keep quiet and wait for the FEC announcement and make headlines that way after the filing deadline. Both of those things played out well for candidates seeking media attention related to money. Okay, so what's going to happen now? Well, the next big deadline is June 30th, when the books close for Q2. That means that just 13 days from today, the candidates will know what their Q2 numbers are, and they can start announcing or leaking those as a way to indicate where they might fall in the pack. Then, by July 15th, they've got to submit those numbers officially to the FEC, Then, shortly afterward, we get the full tally back from the FEC. By the way, they're not submitting just donations, but also spending by the campaign, so you end up with a figure that's like the cash on hand overall for the campaign. So, let's get back to the Buttigieg story for today. If you'll recall, he announced his campaign on January 23rd, but he didn't really make big waves until a CNN town hall on March 10th it is very likely that he made the majority of his Q1 money after that town hall, thus in the 21 days between the town hall and the Q1 fundraising cutoff. So it makes sense that if he made a ton of money in March, he could have made even more in April, and that's what the news today seems to indicate. But that, of course, raises the question, yeah, cool, but what about May and June? If that April trend continued, with April being better than May, Buttigieg could arrive in a few weeks as one of the better-funded candidates in this race, showing solid growth from Q1 into Q2. We don't know for sure yet, but this is a pretty good leading indicator. The Politico story quoted Juliana Smoot, who was finance director for President Obama's 2008 campaign and deputy campaign manager for his 2012 campaign. Speaking about Buttigieg, she said, quote, If you want to show you've got any shot at this, then you need to be growing and he's clearly showing signs that he's expanding, end quote. Expect to hear more stories like this one in the coming weeks as these numbers begin to pop up just ahead of their official deadlines. 
Next up, let's talk about the first DNC debates coming up a week from Wednesday and Thursday. So last Friday, the DNC announced which candidates would appear on each night. Check out Friday's show for more on that if you have not heard it. But I want to give you a sense of what those groupings might mean. Over at New York Magazine, Ed Kilgore wrote a piece that summed up the typical reaction right in his headline. Quote, Four of the five top polling Democrats land on same primary debate night. End quote. Yeah, so despite the DNC's attempt to split up the top polling candidates, their method ended up with this result. Some folks on Twitter pointed out to me that they could have gone much further with their randomization by splitting the candidates into more than two boxes, but they didn't, and so here we are. So here's the deal. On the first night, Wednesday the 26th, the only really high-polling candidate is Elizabeth Warren. Along with her, we will have Booker, Castro, de Blasio, Delaney, Gabbard, Inslee, Klobuchar, O'Rourke, and Ryan. Okay, so right now, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average, Warren is roughly third place overall in the race, just behind Sanders, and both of them considerably behind Biden. But there's a big gap between Warren and O'Rourke, who is the next highest polling candidate on her night. Warren is polling at about 12.8%, and O'Rourke is at 3.5%. So everybody's got an opinion about whether this is good or bad for Warren or O'Rourke or the rest of the candidates or whatever. There's also a big question about what this means for the second night, which has its own complicated mix of candidates, including Biden and Sanders. In the New York Times, Reed Epstein, Lisa Lehrer, and Matt Stevens wrote their own analysis. Reading from that piece, quote, With Friday's announcement of the lineups for the debates set for June 26th and 27th, the political stakes and intriguing subplots of the 2020 Democratic primary race came into sharper focus. Candidates, strategists, and party officials quickly began analyzing the lineups. Is it better to debate on the first night, even if most of the top-tier candidates are on the second night? Or is it better to debate on the second night and try to draw blood against one of those top candidates? The first night will be Senator Elizabeth Warren's to lose, as she faces off against nine lower-polling candidates desperate for breakout moments. But the second night is potentially more consequential, a showdown among four of the biggest names in the 2020 presidential race, Biden, Sanders, Buttigieg, Harris, end quote. So look, I've read a bunch of hot takes about this on Twitter and elsewhere, and I have come to a very clear conclusion. Chill out. Watch the debates. Let the people talk. On each night, we have an opportunity for 10 candidates who got there through a lot of hard work to speak and debate and have their say. And I think worrying in advance about which night is better or whether Sanders and Biden are going to be more important than the others is a real waste of time. So my advice is ignore all of that stuff, keep calm, put the debates on your calendar, and just let them debate and listen to them. Listen to your gut and listen to who you think would make a good president. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E 
Byte.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. For the past week or so, I have been collecting major stories in a browser window, one per tab, about Elizabeth Warren. Every day I've thought, okay, this is finally the day that I read all of these tabs and write a story about what's up with Warren lately. The only problem is the number of tabs just keeps growing and most of them are super long articles. So if I printed them out, it would be hundreds of pages of stuff. And right now I've got 13 major stories open, plus a handful of smaller ones from outlets ranging from the New York Times, which has two profiles right now, to Mother Jones, to Vox, to Rolling Stone. The only reason this is a problem is that I have to write this show in just a few hours each day and I'm running out of reading time. So what is going on with all this coverage around Warren? I'm going to try to give you a rundown of what is going on in the media around Warren. Why is she getting all the coverage and what is that coverage saying? Well, the first big point has to do with polling. Even though we are still super, super early in the primary cycle, polling is already in full swing. The most interesting polls right now are actually not the national ones, but the state-level polls in the early contests that will likely determine how we talk and think about this race in the very early days of 2020. The biggest news for Warren in the past week is that an LA Times poll of California voters for the first time showed Warren in second place in that state. That poll has a margin of error of plus or minus 3%, And one key thing to keep in mind is that the way these primaries work, any candidate needs to get at least 15% of the vote in that state to get any of that state's delegates at all. So let me read you the top five candidates by percentage. Biden, 22%. Warren, 18%. Sanders, 17%. Harris, 13%. And Buttigieg, 10%. Now, this is potentially trouble for Harris, given that California is her home state, but we will deal with that another time. The point here is that California will vote on Super Tuesday this year, and early voting in California starts super early. It starts on February 3rd, which is actually, of course, the same day as the Iowa caucuses. So in a very real sense, California is right up there with Iowa and New Hampshire, and arguably more important, since California has way, way more delegates to award. So candidates are looking at that state and at these early polls and realizing, huh, there's only three candidates who currently exceed that 15% margin that they need. And Warren is one of them. Also, she is neck and neck with Sanders, but keep in mind, margins of error are real things, and that difference between 18% and 17% is well within the margin. Okay, so that California polling thing is one huge driver of recent Warren coverage. Another seems to be her ability to explain policy in plain language that appeals to voters. Let me read from an opinion piece in the Washington Post by Paul Waldman, talking about how Warren is doing in Iowa. Quote, Warren, a senator from Massachusetts, is drawing some of the largest crowds as she campaigns across the state. Those attending her events testify to her skill in winning people over her ability to describe policy challenges through effective storytelling, and her seemingly inexhaustible energy and enthusiasm. 
End quote. Okay, so I do think that's the second clear factor, at least it feels like one to me. When I read Warren's policies, they are clear, they are relatively short, and they typically include factors like cost and how she would pay for them. Now, later in the same piece I just quoted, Waldman offers a further opinion on this policy thing, and I think this is key. Reading again from his piece, quote, Warren may be successfully turning the act of having policy plans into a virtue in and of itself, one that stands apart from the substance of the plans. Democratic voters are drawn toward candidates they think have policy muscle to go along with charisma. And in Warren's case, what's in her plans may matter less for the support she gets than for the idea that she's the candidate who has plans for everything. It means she's serious, substantive, prepared, and ambitious about change. Not coincidentally, these are all things President Trump is not. There's something else Warren has that wins respect from those who have covered lots of campaigns and winds up producing better media coverage in subtle ways. A clear, coherent message of the kind most of the other candidates are lacking. End quote. So that leads us to the third major point driving the Warren media surge, which is that journalists love to talk about Warren. And indeed, Waldman himself admits to that in his own piece. Although he's not endorsing anybody, he says the media itself, the mere fact that so many writers are writing about this candidate in such detail, could shape how politically engaged voters right now are viewing her. Now, I do want to point out, without judging y'all, because I am one of you, but people who are very engaged in this primary right now are a little bit weird. I am not sure whether the group of people who support a particular candidate today has much to do with what happens six months from now. That's part of why I'm so excited about the debates. Those should be the first moment when, you know, regular people turn on the TV and actually start paying attention. Okay, and I think the fourth factor is basically populism and a willingness to use classically Republican-style language when talking about things like American jobs. Democrats have been cast for as long as I can remember as the party of big government and inherently as trusting the government, wanting to expand it, wanting to preserve it. But part of what Warren talks about is busting up big parts of it, reorganizing it, making it work for regular people. And while she is definitely on the left, that may appeal to people who have a real mistrust of both the government and the elite. Ed Kilgore wrote the following for New York Magazine, quote, Democrats would be wise to remember that a majority of voters don't inherently trust government any more than they do big corporations. The political power of populism in both its left and right-wing expressions derives from a perpetual national craving for leaders who will bend government to the popular will and force it to address genuine needs. This by no means requires hostility to public employees or any reluctance to expand government where it's needed, but it does mean boldly taking issue with government as it exists. And perhaps we are seeing more of that from Democrats this year. End quote. And last up today, on Thursday, Senator Cory Booker stopped by BET's show Black Coffee for a 35-minute sit-down with Mark Lamont Hill, Gia Peppers, and Jameer Pond. Now, if you're not familiar with the show, how do I put this? It's kind of like The View, except it's on BET and there's no live studio audience. Maybe that's sufficient? I don't know. Close enough. Anyway, it was really refreshing to see Booker on this show. They covered a ton of ground. They played the game This or That. They talked about why Booker wants a woman as his vice president. 
They talked about his childhood and his newly developed skills at catching tiny bits of sleep while on the road. They talked about reparations. They talked about the new show When They See Us. I mean, you name it. It's really engaging. It's fun to watch. And they fit a lot into 35 minutes. There's a link in the show notes to the full YouTube video. And if you are somebody who maybe doesn't watch BET all that much, this is a great place to start. Okay. So I want to highlight one little clip from this appearance that isn't all that consequential politically, but it did stick out to me as something that's a little-known fact about Booker. He is vegan. He has been vegan since 2014, and before that he was vegetarian since 1998. As far as I know, Booker is the only candidate in the race who is vegan. I want to leave you today with this snippet from the show in which he talks about that and gets some gentle ribbing from the hosts. Now, this comes right after a game of this or that, in which the last question was sweet potato pie or pumpkin pie. And Booker seemed truly confused as to how anybody would choose pumpkin pie. And then they started talking about offering him some pie, and then that led to the vegan thing. So, listen in. He runs. Right. I got you. Right. And I'm a vegan, too, so I have to watch about what's in my... System. Oh, you should hear what they say about vegans. Oh, hey, what a First time. of all, there is... Talk about affinity groups. There are massive black vegan affinity groups out there. You can go, there are black vegans on Instagram, <laughs> there are black vegans, uh, you know, Twitter feeds. Oh, I have no problem. Let's I, go. I, I will bring all the smoke. My, my, smoke. Come on, bro. No, it's, it's not the vegan part. I, it's fine. Oh, okay. Some of them are just annoying. Like, oh. like you're eating a meal and you're eating, you're eating I'm your- I'm vegetarian. You're, you're, and there's a difference. You're, you're, you're eating your- yeah, no. First of all, you have to always draw attention to it. Like, it's like people who go to Harvard. They always tell you within 20 seconds that they went to Harvard. It right. has nothing to do with right. the conversation and they work in it. Right. Well, are you going to be on time? Well, you know, I'm vegan, so, you know, I'm- No, I'm, just yeah. don't offer me chicken. And, and I don't want it. And then you're judgmental. Like, oh, this is a great meal and nobody had to die. Wait a minute, wait a you know, minute, wait, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me- <laughs> That when, when you're eating your steak and somebody orders something, you, you don't make a commentary about our food. Because I hear you. it all the time. Thank I hear you. people, oh, baby, where do you get your protein yeah. from? Yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got I, no, I, no protein. Yeah. My mother. Yeah. How are you surviving? I'm like, look at my size right now. The questions I get all the time. Break it down. Or like, I say, are you, I was a vegetarian for like 20 plus years. They're like, you're a vegetarian? Well, how, do you eat fish? No, I'm a vegetarian. Okay, well, what, about some, right. what about some chicken? <laughs> right. No, no, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. vegetarian. <laughs> fair point, fair yes. point. Now, there is a ton more like that, but it actually involves, you know, issues and life on the campaign trail and so on. So if you're interested in Booker or if you've just never seen Black Coffee, give it a look. It is the second to last link in the show notes, and I think you're going to dig it. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, so I have a question for y'all. We have some debates coming up, I don't know if you've heard, and I'm wondering if you want me to make a little party game out of that. Like, you know those little bingo cards people make where you print them at home and you use them at your own little personal viewing party? Like, if Warren says, I've got a plan for that, you mark that square on your card, or if O'Rourke just suddenly starts talking in Spanish, you mark that square... I'm curious if y'all would actually enjoy those, and if so, I'm going to make some. And of course, they will be different for each night, given the mix of candidates. So let me know on Twitter, or find the Primary Ride Home page on Facebook. There is a link to that at the bottom of the show notes. And just let me know. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.